My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Eric, how are you doing this evening? You know, I'm doing well. Hanging in there. Kind of excited that uh, Halloween's around the corner. Yes, it is. Well, it is around the corner as we're recording this, and it's also going to be very around the corner when this episode <laughs> drops. That just threw me. I had to think about space and time for uh, for a second. So let's stop thinking about that as not to overload my brain and get to the intro. Tonight's guest might not be immediately familiar to some of our listeners by name, but if you've been on social media at any point in the last few months, you've almost certainly seen his devastatingly on-point approximations of the average Trump supporter. His stand-up album, Bluff Creek, arrived on October 2nd. He's been doing, interestingly enough, stand-up shows online, virtually. And now he's here to talk to us about one of the darkest movies in the Stephen King canon. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Brent Terhune. Brent, how are you doing tonight? I'm well, guys. Please sit down. Hold your applause. We were trying Uh, to. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, I'm very excited to talk to you. I uh I'm a big fan of the work that you've been doing on Twitter over the last six months or however long it's been since um since I started following you. Uh how how do you describe what you do to somebody who's never seen it? Yeah, what I do is if you've ever seen anybody uh genuine genuinely rant in a truck, I make fun <laughs> of those people. And they just so happen to be uh, a lot of them uh, Trump supporters. I've been described as uh, uh, MAGA E in my look, which is never <laughs> good, MAGA E. But pretty much, if yeah, if you've ever seen somebody rant in a truck, whether it be millennial about millennials or whatever the current fad is, uh, Taco Bell getting rid of the Mexican pizza uh, was uh, an absurd one that I found funny, but. Uh, <laughs> That kind of thing where, you know, it's just a guy ranting in a truck is pretty much what I do. And I make fun of that kind of culture. Not too long ago, there was a boat parade here in Austin and a number of Trump supporters boats sank to the bottom of the lake. It was a uh, it was it was an electric day here in Austin, Texas. And the video you posted in response to it, I can't get hold on. I got to. I can't get through that. Uh, the video you posted in response to it, referring to the SS Margaritaville, I'm still laughing about. It's been weeks, and I'm still laughing about that gag. It's Thanks. so good. Yeah. That and those really are great because show. you can kind of piggyback on real-life events, though, and if you get it out pretty quick as far as when that event happened, it can you know you can really generate some traffic online, which has been great, you know. That was a that was a banner day for shenanigans and jokes on Twitter, I found. And then when I saw that video pop up in the middle of it, I was like, fuck yes. Now the headliner is here. It was so good. <laughs> Still mourning the SS Margaritaville. Yeah. May she rest in peace. What is your Stephen King origin story, Brent? How did you first become aware of King and his work? Um, I guess it would be like as a kid, uh, you know, around this month, October Halloween and you watching either would have been like TNT or AMC. I can't even recall 
what it would have been when I was a kid, but you know, seeing Stephen King movies on TV and for me, it would have been probably a silver bullet or, um, pet cemetery Two. Because I specifically remember Clancy, I think his name's Clancy Brown, yeah, whatever yeah. his name is, uh, you know, coming back from the dead, I think. So those are etched in my brain as uh, my Stephen King memories. That one's got little Eddie Furlong in it, too, from That's right. T2 fame. Yeah. Yeah. Then that one was like that one was on HBO all the fucking time for about five years in the nineties. You know, we got HBO illegally along with the rest of the channels. And uh, that may have been (laughs) where I saw it was HBO. There's a great kill in that. And where Clancy Brown kills uh, Tom Hanks's like redheaded best friend from big. Who's like the bully in there. And he kills him by like holding a motorcycle revving upside down, like, where the tire is almost on his face and then the kids like scarf gets caught in the tire and it like shreds his face. That is, that is the lasting image I have from that's why, why you don't bring a scarf to a motorcycle fight. Everyone does <laughs> that's that. Right. That's crazy. My other memory probably would have been uh, children of the corn or mm. like a recent one as an adult. I remember seeing the, the movie thinner for the first time. Oh, Jesus. And I was, and I was like, Oh man, this is uh not what I expected. <laughs> no, that one does not hold up as we found out uh, very recently. No, I was, uh, we watched the, the Langoliers miniseries, the, the Tommy knockers miniseries, like really bottom of the barrel shit. And then like right after that, one of our guests picked thinner. And I saw that one when it came out, like I saw that in theaters and my memory of it was like, Oh yeah, I like thinner. So this will be fun to revisit. And I struggled to get through that shit. It was a rough watch. It was better left in your memory where you liked it. Mm-hmm. This is what we get for digging up the past. You know? Also, uh, if there are voices in the back of my recording, just know that it's my girlfriend Anne Hayes in the back guys <laughs> <laughs> in the background. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Which is a uh, callback to, what was it, Thomas Jane? That was oh, the interview, Jane. right? Yep. Yeah. A very uh, yeah. most spirited interview with uh, Mr. Tom Jane. Yeah, yeah if you're so listening I, to that, go back and listen to, go listen to that interview if you're listening to this. It's worth your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will, and, you will and, not waste an hour listening to that one. I assume, Brent, that you're not wearing shoes and smoking a director's pipe while, <laughs> while talking to us, too? Yes, I have adopted also smoking a pipe for some reason. A uh, very uh, Kramer from Seinfeld for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there like a period when like Jonah Hill directed the uh, like mid nineties and he was mm-hmm. popping up in like black turtlenecks a few times? Like once he became a director, like that's what that reminded me of with the pipe. Was like, well, I'm a director now, so I have to obviously change my <laughs> aesthetic to match like my own. It's so fucking weird. You'll know I start directing when I look like a young Bob Dylan with sunglasses on and a fro. That's what to me when I when I think of a young director that just started as a young Bob Dylan. And uh, yeah, and I'll be pointing with my acoustic guitar. I remember reading a thing about um, like in Mulholland Drive, Justin Thoreau's character is like this young director and he's always got a golf club with him. And Bob rem- open it up. Yeah. And I remember like. I can't remember if it was an interview with like David Lynch or Thoreau, but somebody asked him about like that character specifically and whoever it was responding was like, no, that's like somebody you see in, in Hollywood. Like they become a director and then 
they adopt like props as part of their personality. And then it's like, oh, that's the guy with the golf club. That's like a calling card thing. I'm really happy I don't fucking work in that culture because it sounds <laughs> it sounds mad. I've been I've been around hundreds of directors on multiple film sets. The only thing that comes anywhere close to that is uh, Robert Rodriguez, who do, does have his guitar with him. Like yeah, that's, that's the true. only thing I can think of. Yeah, I mean directors have like used viewfinders and shit, but they kind of need to, right? You know, mm-hmm. that's part of the their job. But like uh, for the most part, directors are just fucking schlubby dudes in cargo pants sitting behind a monitor. <laughs> You get that that quintessential uh, was it a meg a megaphone, but it's like the wooden ones. You know what I'm talking yep. about? Where yep. they're just yelling in that look, looking like half a horse jockey, <laughs> like with the weird pants and stuff. Yep, like the cone. It's just a cone, yeah, the, the right? cone that's yeah. from from like 1950s cheerleader practice. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm associating that in my mind somehow with cheerleaders. So this makes <laughs> yeah. Sense. Now, Brent, you picked one of the better King adaptations, which is The Mist. Thank you. Frank, Frank Darabont's The Mist. Yes, very well done. You passed the test. I had something to do with that. Didn't bring <laughs> us Children of the Corn 4 or anything like that. Thank Christ. So why did you why did you pick The Mist? That just the ending stuck with me. And, you know, I, <laughs> I watched this probably as a teenager. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't know when this movie came out. I'm sure you guys have the info in front of you. But uh, 2007. Yeah, so I probably I remember you know going to a family video. If you guys ha- have those, mm-hmm. it, you know, chain of video stores. I remember renting this, and then it was you know up till the end part, which we will talk about. It was a fine movie. There was a lot of dialogue <laughs> back and forth for as a, a teenager to watch, and then the end, I'm like, oh man, that's so dark. I love it. So that's you know that's the the ending really clinched it for me. Eric, what can you uh, tell us about the novella that inspired this this movie? On a personal level, this was one of my favorite things that I read when I was a kid. Um, it, the Mist is one of my all-time favorite. It's in my top-tier King stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it had such an impact on me. And, and I'll tell you why. Here's something that the younger generation might not understand. But uh, I was born in 81. So I was born before... Uh, home computing was the norm. So I actually had to learn how to type. You know, most kids now they grow up and they just like pick it up. They pick, pick up typing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that I took a class in middle school <laughs> that was typing and it was like me and like two other dudes and all the rest were women were, you know, girls. Wait, was it optional? It was, it was, it wasn't oh, okay. required. Like yeah. an elective. Okay. Yes. I mean, I was born in 89 and I took a, a typing class too. So really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah I, I learned on uh, Mario teaches typing. I remember that. I remember my little brother had that and I use that to sharpen my typing skills. Um, it's, uh, th- yeah. That was like a, disguised a, as a video game. They're trying to trick right. it. I don't remember like any specific typing programs, but I remember um, the fuck is that thing called the one? It's like a text based thing. And you die. Oregon Trail. That's what it was. Yeah. Oregon Trail. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, you that. get dysentery, or you. Everybody bought all, spent all their money on ammo and not provisions, just so they can go shoot shoot the bears, because that was the fun part of the game. Yeah. yeah. So when I was taking typing, I actually practiced typing at home, and I practiced by literally transcribing word for word the mist, like because I love the story so much. And what? I went through word for word and had the book in front of me 
and, you know, just essentially read it and then typed it into the computer. I was teaching myself not to look at my my fingers while I was typing. And so I was looking at the book. So and I did that for the entire novella. And uh, so that was the first King property that I absorbed in that way, where by doing that, it's it's a really weird exercise, and and I I don't know if I'd recommend it to anybody, but I mean everybody's got fucking all this free time. If you really want to like kind of get into the nuts and bolts of how King writes, it's really fascinating because you're to do it that way because then you're for- forcing yourself to pay attention to every word and where he puts every bit of character dialogue or how he he teases things. That's something I noticed then. He, he has a thing where he foreshadows very blatantly a lot in his work. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I first noticed it, where he says, you know, like, and meet Bob. This is what he had for breakfast. And this is what what his wife looks like. Uh, and then he goes, and Bob will die in, you know, next chapter, you know, yeah. kind of thing. You know, and you're like, holy shit, I got to fucking pay him. attention to that. Yeah. I would like to point out that I did learn how to type by uh, writing the phrase, uh, I'll work and no play make Brent a dull boy over and over again, which made an odd <laughs> reveal for my teachers and my mom. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> how how thick was your book of uh, all work and no play? Pretty thick because I did uh, change up my typing style. So sometimes it looked like a diamond on the page. Other <laughs> right. times it was uh, triple spaced, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's how House of Leaves got written. Brent, were your were your parents cool with you watching like horror when you were growing up? Yeah, one of my earliest horror memories was uh, you know, probably a year again after Scream came out. So, you know, a year it would would have taken for a VHS copy to come out at the video store and my my mom and I watched all the at least one, two and maybe three of those together. So, I was always like more of a a more mature kid, so I got away with a lot of shit. I could do whatever I want because they knew they didn't have to worry about me too much, you know. Right. They didn't think you were going to take a murder or anything until no, the, that. Little did they know. <laughs> what, what about you, one, Scott? When, do you remember The Mist when you were in your King Kick, your early King Kick? I assume you. I didn't you read, read it The Mist until much later because uh, Mist is in Skeleton Crew, and I right. Skeleton Crew is like the first short story collection of his that I had, but it's also the longest one. And I was a very lazy reader. Like I liked reading, but I would like automatically scan for the shortest ones. And then I can be like, I I read a whole short story today. It's like three fucking pages, you know? (laughs) So the mist is like a hundred pages long, which is nothing now. But when you're a kid, that's, it seems insurmountable. So I didn't read it until much later. I think like probably, or it, it might not have even been until around the time that they announced the movie that I got around to actually sitting down and reading it. I came to Crazy. it way late. Yeah. yeah. Did you like kick yourself for taking too long to, to read it or so long whenever you got around to it? Or do you, do you just think it's okay since you didn't like have it there with you as a, no, as a kid? I like that one a lot. I, and in fact, I think that if I had read it when I was younger, I probably wouldn't have appreciated it as much. You know, there's, there's a lot of the, a lot in that story. Like the, just the, the fact that the mist, and this is true of the movie as well, sort of operates as like a microcosm of our world. The people that are packed into that store are basically representatives of different kinds of people in the world at large. And I think that would have been totally lost on me if I, when I was like 14, you know, I wouldn't have had the life experience to understand that. And also like, you know, the uh, Mrs. Carmody, the, uh, or Carmody or however you say it, the religious Carmody. Carmody. 
man, I didn't even get it right in two tries. Um, <laughs> I don't think that I would have appreciated or like wrap my head around what he's sort of saying there about religion. And I just don't, I don't think in general, I would have liked this story when I was younger. I think I would have skipped ahead to all the fucking monster parts, but in retrospect, yeah, it's one of his, one of his better ones. It was also one that was adapted into multiple different things, even before the movie. Like right. there were like different audiobook versions. And I remember I had a, a tape uh, that was an abridged version of the mist, but it was in 3d sound and the cassette tape was like the cover was like a tentacle, but it was like one of those embossed covers that kind of like pop out a little bit. And it was yeah, like a tentacle that. coming yeah. out through the mist and by 3d sound, it was just kind of like they use stereo. I don't know. There's just something about that one that seemed so edgy and mysterious and, it kind of, to me, taps into some of the same like wish fulfillment of the stand. Like nobody wants the world to be wiped out by a pandemic, but all those scenes in the stand when they're walking through an empty town and they can just pick up whatever they want and how would you survive and like all this stuff kind of circulates in your mind. And the, I had the same feeling reading The Mist, where it's like if I was in the situation, what would I do? And and. Uh, King's very talented at putting you into the situation with the rest of the people. The For characters. sure. Brent, do you, how do you feel like you would respond in a, in a mist like situation? Would you try to stay home or try to get home from the grocery store? Do you think you would camp out? Like Probably, what's your approach? I don't know. Cause there's always that, obviously, you know, when people come running out of the mist covered in blood and screaming, <laughs> it's never a good sign. And obviously <laughs> there were people that went into the mist, but part of me is also like, well, I'm probably going to die, so I might as well see what's out there because my natural curiosity would probably get the best of me. But and then, you know, the other part of me was if, if I was home, I would just end up staying home. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. it's that weird thing. It's like, let me go die uh, in a dumb way or let me sit in my living room and get killed. One of the two, but no in between. I feel and, like the it, people you'd make fun of, though, Brent, would be the ones that would go out and say, fuck you, there ain't no monsters out there. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I prepared my whole life for this because I, I stockpile everything. But when it came time to use it, I said, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would want to die at home or at least on my way home. I wouldn't want to go out in a fucking like Piggly Wiggly or whatever it is. If it If it really felt like an apocalyptic situation where like the chance of death is really high, I think I would probably make a break for it. As stupid as that is, I, th I think the desire to like want to die in familiar surroundings would trump everything else. Right. I'd hope that I would be an Ollie character. Like he's the one that always has his head on straight. He sees through all the bullshit. You know, he's the the nice guy that, that can also shoot really well. <laughs> you know, it's like, to me, that's who I'd want to be. I don't know if I would be that guy. I'd probably be more like, you know, William Sadler's character <laughs> in, in the movie where, where like I just fucking shit my pants the first time I actually see something scary. Yeah, and he's a coward and then fall in line behind a, a false prophet as soon as possible. <laughs> and they're the ones like drinking in the back of the store, right? Like Sadler's one of the two guys doing that, isn't he? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah that would With totally be the grown be man that wears his hat backwards on, um, <laughs> on purpose, unironically. Unless you guys are wearing that now, then you look fantastic. <laughs> no. He's like a mechanic or something, right? He's right, got the yeah. Michael Myers uh, from the neck down. Yeah, the coveralls, I guess you would call yeah. them. Almost a borderline Ghostbusters outfit. <laughs> he needs the, the, what is the proton pack or whatever it is on the back. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, he left that at home, unfortunately. The, that would have been really good against the Spiders, I think. <laughs> another interesting element to uh, to the mist is the whole idea of the Arrowhead Project. This right. shadowy government bullshit that's going on in a base nearby and clearly something went wrong there someone spilled a cup of coffee on a fucking monitor or something <laughs> and they open up this dimension to i don't know hell world or wherever these lovecraftian sort of creatures come from and i find that idea very fascinating that seems like exactly the sort of shit that might happen you know like when people talk about how like the hadron collider might have like you know, fucked up our entire time space continuum by like smashing <laughs> yeah. two atoms together or something. I don't know. I've read about it like five times. I still don't understand it, <laughs> but it's like a fun thing to think about. It does seem like the sort of dumb shit, a government agency, like sort of meddling in, in, th- in things they don't understand would, would fuck up. It, it feels particularly possible right now. And I think in, at least in the movie version of the, the mist, they give you enough information without giving you too much the mist to me is very much zombie movie as far as there's mm-hmm. a creature and you know, I don't, I don't need to know how we got there. You know, a hundred percent. I just need to know that there are monsters there. And I think they, you know, we know there's a military thing and the uh, project arrowhead or whatever it is. And we kind of know something went wrong, but I don't need to know the science of it because then, then I question the science. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. When I, that's right. the reason I'm not even we're not there for that. You know, we're there to see some monsters eat some people. It's scarier if you don't know, for sure. Yeah. You know, the more you explain something and demystify it, the less, uh-huh. uh, you know. Oh, fuck. <laughs> that was unintentional. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it does. Right. You know, it's better that they they didn't get into it in the uh, in the movie. You talked you about that in the Tom Jane episode, didn't you? Eric? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. No, because the Darabont script originally opened with the Arrowhead Project, not with the storm rolling in. Um, and that was one of the few add-ons because the the uh, the movie itself is is a fairly one-to-one adaptation of the story. It, it, it mm-hmm. hits all the same themes. The, all the characters are there and all that's right. The only thing that really changes is the end and... And in the original script, the beginning, because in, in the novella, they really talk about the Arrowhead project as a possibility of this being an origin for it. And it kind of makes sense. And it probably is. But they spend more time in the movie kind of pointing it that that's where uh, where it came from. And in the original script, it was even more in, in the original script. It started with there being like a, a containment you know, room, very Stranger Thingsy kind of actually that something happens and, and the fucking, you know, mist pours out of a portal. Yeah, I, th- I think most things are better when there's uh, better left ambiguous. You know, I, I don't really want to see what the villain looks like under the mask. And I don't as long as I know it's a, a barrel of toxic stuff. That's as far as we need to go with the cause of things. Just from a story perspective, like the entire story is told from David Drayton's point of view. You don't need that extra added opening that he doesn't see. He doesn't know about, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that it takes away from the the whole story when you leave his point of view. What do you think about how it balances the archetypes of these different sort of characters and these different groups are represented, be it either easily swayed people or religious fanatics or these more militaristic guys? Do you think that anyone was left out of this equation or do you feel like, you know, the movie pretty much represents all the, all the types of people that you might encounter in this sort of situation? Yeah, I'd have to think. I mean, I'm trying to compare to some other disaster type thing. You know, 
that you have the relation with i think it's you know darabon and the walking dead and you get the those mm-hmm. those people break down as well as far as the religious person and then the uh the uber military person you know and what's his thomas jane is essentially andrew lincoln from walking yeah. dead so i'm trying to think of the other personality types then you always have the non-believers like uh the his neighbor brent black brent which you don't meet too many of those uh for the record <laughs> I'm, I'm a white brent i, I could say that uh but, <laughs> but you and then you get that guy who totally is you know from the jump you get the you get brent's clan and you get david's clan and then then you know that breaks down even further as far as believers and non-believers that's the from the jump and then you get the religious types and then yeah i don't i don't i was trying i'm trying to think of any other personality types that you would have gotten in this. there aren't really there aren't really any kind of bleeding heart liberal types in there i don't think unless we count david as one who's like sort of like look man let's just be rational about this like there's some bad shit going on and he's trying to warn everyone and they're not listening but he's not like like there are no hippies represented in the mist hmm. I guess a better way to look at this is how likely do you think the dynamic of this group would break down in real life? Do you think the mist accelerates it in terms of the survivor types? I th- I think it's pretty accurate as far as, you know, when I, when I watched this movie uh, twice, once in black and white, cause I heard that was kind of the better version and then the color version, both are good by the way. But this movie in general is an accurate portrayal of the year 2020. The be- uh, you know, <laughs> beginning of the year, we had uh, you know coronavirus, COVID, and then there are people fighting for toilet paper <laughs> so they can yeah. wipe their ass. And then it-, it didn't even get that bad in the mist. Like they're <laughs> monsters flying around, and you know they're throwing uh, soup, which is a very 2020 thing. Throwing soup. Yeah. But uh, and cans of tuna, cans of tuna, yeah, <laughs> tuna fish, preferred it's, projectile of Antifa. <laughs> like uh, you know, a decade ago, you probably would have th- thought, you know, this this movie's not that accurate as far as how quickly it would break down. But man, you look at how real the real world is, and you're like, I don't think it broke down quick enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's too far off the mark. I think if you put you know, just a, a random selection of people like that. Like, let's call it 50 people or 100 people or whatever it is. And jam them in a grocery store with the apocalypse happening around them. Fuck yeah, that shit will happen. And oh, it will yeah. happen quick. It's going to be a power grab and, and people are going to gravitate towards the the strong leaders. I mean, that's, you know, Lord of the Flies, you know, that's 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 been in... Uh, in fiction and nonfiction, I mean, the with the Stanford prison experiment, you know, showed that as well. It's like just normal people put under crazy strain. You're going to have this kind of crazy cult like stuff happen. That's just how how humans are wired, I guess. Can you, I, can you I, elaborate on that? The Stanford prison thing, because I don't really know much about that. Oh, Lord. Well, that's where they took like some volunteer students and they made some of them uh, gave them the power of guards and the others were prisoners. And okay, yeah. Like what? And so they watched like how power dynamics work. It's very much a, you know, used as an example of just how society breaks down, like a real life Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Mm hmm. It's similar. There was another experiment and I forget like who it was named after or what it was called, but. It was they were they were situating people like at a desk with a big red button and there was a screen in front of them that they couldn't see through. 
And what they were told was that on the other side of this partition was a person that was hooked up to electrodes. And every time they smashed that red button, the person hooked up to the electrodes was getting shocked. So they had someone on the other side of this thing and they were screaming in time with the button presses, right? Mm -hmm. And so whoever was leading the experiment was like seeing how far they could push somebody to keep mashing that button, even though they knew they were hurting another human being based solely on the instructions of the person conducting the experiment. And what they found is people just keep smashing the fucking button, even when they knew like it was like brutally injuring somebody and, and possibly even killing them. Humans are fucked up, dude. If that's not a metaphor for the internet, then I don't know what <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, you just described Twitter. Yeah, we should we should have known it was a bad idea. Send. <laughs> <laughs> we may have a personality type that correct me if I'm wrong, we didn't have was the overly selfish person. Maybe they were in the mist and I just didn't really see it, but the guy that's kind of hoarding supplies or essentially the guy that uh, closes the door uh, so the zombies eat the other person and right. he watches because so, he got away or whatever. Uh, I don't yeah. know if that was in the mist, but may, you know, maybe it was. I don't know. Kind of like a Burke from Aliens thing where he like yeah. slams the door shut and then he immediately gets fucking xenomorphed in the face <laughs> like that guy. Right. Or the yeah, dude yeah. downstairs on Dawn of the Dead or um, Night of the Living Dead, the the dad, the, the right. That yeah. guy thinks so, he's got it made. Not so yep. much. I think you're right. There's not really that there because most of the people, the evil that the people of the story do, they either do it out of ignorance or they do it out of uh, falling into Carmody's religious fervor. Like the William Sadler character comes close by, you know, using his machismo to like, I don't believe any of this stupid mm-hmm. monsters bullshit. And he gets the bag boy killed. Weirdly enough, the most selfish person in the story is our lead, David Drayton, because he's yeah. his goal is to protect his kid and get back to his wife. That's what he wants to do. And, you know, you can tell he has empathy for other people, but like no matter what, if it comes to it, it's it's him and his, his family. He's the only person I can really think of that way. I mean, Carmody's selfish in her own way in that she... She just wants the the love and admiration and attention. That's what she wants from her power. Like I don't, you know, she's not using her her religious zealotry to uh, get more of the food in the store or whatever. She just wants to be loved. She wants to be worshipped by by her flock. Essentially, she wants I think to she not wants be, to be the, feared by them. I don't know if she wants well, to be loved, but she wants to be loved by the by hers. Like she wants to be feared by the people who won't fall in line because Carmody has been a, like, she's established as a joke, right? She is the religious kook of the community. And, you know, she thinks everybody's out to get her. And, you know, she's obviously been an outcast, you know, in this community for a long time. And now when the chips are down, like suddenly this is her moment to be loved by her people. And yes, loved and feared. You're right. But it's, you know, I, I think in her mind, it's, you know, she she views this as her time. Yeah, I think I would have I it would be very hard for me in that situation if I didn't immediately try to go home and get eaten in the parking lot by, you know, some sort of beast for me not to just snap and kill the, the, the like the religious fundamentalist in the room. <laughs> you know, the second I see some shit going in that direction, I think I would have I think I would call it out. And then by the time, you know, she's starting to like round up apostles and shit basically then we would have to start like sharpening broom handles and shit and, and get it ready because <laughs> right. it's gonna get ugly 
Darabont does something very smart in the in the movie that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they do in the book. I, I may have transcribed it when I was, you know, 14 years old, but uh, it's been about a 10 years since I've read it and re- or gone back through it. But um, my memory is that the moment when like all the bugs get in and the, the pterodactyl things are hitting the windows mm-hmm. and those the stingy bugs, you know, can kill you with the sting and then one lands on Carmody and <laughs> the doesn't stingy uh, bugs. <laughs> the stingy bugs uh, one lands on her and could sting her and doesn't. And like p- people witness that. And so she becomes more than just the zealot. She's a prophet, right? Because she had predicted that somebody was going to die that night and uh, that she would be safe. And then like, she's put in just as much danger as anybody else. But when one of those things lands on her, it just chooses not to sting her and flies away. Yeah. Um, I don't think that moment's in the, in the novella and it goes so far to showing why she would have a following as quickly as she does. If she's right about that, then she's got to be right about the rest. Yeah, I don't know. I don't rem- I don't honestly remember. I do want to talk about the creatures in this thing, which are really mm. fucking cool. My big problem with monster design in movies in in general and particularly in the like the last 10 years or so, they all look like the fucking thing from Cloverfield. They're all gray and they're all just sort of like a hulking thing with an ill-defined silhouette. The monsters in the mist are really cool looking. And yeah. and each one is particular. Each one, ha- it's almost like the X-Men or some shit. Like they each have their own power. Like this one flies and this one's a spider, but it's got a baby mouth. And then, you know, this one is like <laughs> the size of a building. That's really cool shit. All the monster stuff in this movie. I, I love the, the designs of it. Right. The spiders have some real Xanti ants from uh, Twilight Zone energy going on where they got like human faces, almost human like faces on them. Yeah, they're fucking upsetting. The the reason I watched the the black and white version, one is just because I had never seen it. But the big complaint, because I had listened to, it was another uh, horror podcast, definitely not as good as uh, whatever this one is. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, they said that the CG didn't hold up, which I, I thought it what, was fine. Under black and white? No, they said it was much better under black and white. And then, because I watched the black and white version, and then... It had been a week since I watched it, so I watched the color version to prepare for this. And, you know, that doesn't bother me. I think if you're being picky, you could say that, especially the, like, the garage door scene. Yeah, the tentacles um, kind of rough, yeah. Yeah, which I, I don't care, because you're not going to trick me that it's real, first off. So, <laughs> um, yeah. The, the thing I do, I don't like about it, because it goes back to what I was saying before, is I want to see the least amount of stuff for the monsters but there was just no way to do that in this movie but the the this is just a personal thing for me i don't like a tentacle monster because i just know it's a squid thing like i just know what's on the end of that so i'd rather not if it was like a hand that's to me that's more mysterious because now i want to see what's on the end of the hand with the tentacle it's some kind of squid thing you know um, yeah, but with like a squid monster, I would be where my my primary concern at that point is like, w- what exactly is at the other end of it? If we have spiders with human mouths, right? Does the squid monster have like a giant beak or does it have like some sort of like orifice that you're going to go into? I want to know like what my body is going to get passed into when I get grabbed by that tentacle and brought back. And I don't know. It could be any number of things. Well, they, they also make the tentacles themselves deadly. All the little suckers have little mouths on them that are tearing flesh, mm-hmm. you know? 
So it yeah, almost that just seems matter. unfair. That seems unfair yeah. from like the perspective of prey. It doesn't even have to get you back to its beak or fucking gaping hole or whatever the fuck. You know, it could just like yeah. bleed you out through its uh, through its tentacles. I don't. Yeah. I don't and approve the- of the evolution in this in this <laughs> in this dimension yeah. where this thing came from. It's not fair. Right. Yeah. And then and then uh, the movie, the tentacle like actually like splits open and like grabs people. Right. I seem to remember that, that it lifts up and then like opens itself up. They're almost like predator mouths, you know? Are you sure you're not thinking of the shit weasels and Dreamcatcher? I know they, they, uh, the ones in the mist, they, they kind of splay, splay open just from a touch. You can get, you know, uh, it'll wound you like, you know, not even wrapping around, but just from like a touch, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's bullshit. What Eric, where do you, were, you, you, you were, came from? Was it another dimension? Yeah, I guess so. Yes. I mean, that was always my interpretation reading the short story. And, you know, obviously in the movie, knowing what the intention was, of course, it was from another dimension. But, you know, I think that is the definitely the insinuation that wherever this came from, it's not of this earth. Oh, for sure. I guess I do wonder, like, is it all coming from the same dimension or did they just open up the floodgates? Because the things that come through seem there's a lot of disparity between them. Although I guess there's a lot of variety to the, the animals on Earth. Eric, you were on set for this thing. Like, did you see any of the the monster shit like in person? Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I, I have a, a picture of of me sitting with the one of the spiders. Fuck that. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll make sure it goes on our our Twitter feed whenever it comes out. But uh, yeah, I was there for a lot of it. I was there for the kind of the initial run whenever Jeffrey Demon runs in and says there's something in the mist, and uh, I was there for that stuff. I was there for on a different set in Louisiana, they shot the, um, uh, the opening with, uh, where Drayton is painting the gunslinger portrait. Mm-hmm. I was there for that. Um, and then later on I was there for them making their final like run out to the cars. Um, I also got to walk around the pharmacy and see all the spider victims, the cobweb people like up in the corners and shit. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, it, it was super rad, man. That, that was such a great time, especially as being, a uh, such a huge king nerd. So was the spider like a robot or what? They had a stand-in uh, spider. I think uh, K&B made them and they essentially were reference, photo reference. Uh, they never like made an animatronic one, I don't think. I think there's one shot in the movie where they use a real spider and that's you see like the back end of the spider like going over the windshield like onto the roof. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a that's a practical spider. But uh, other than that, like I don't think they built anything to play as the main spider i think they always intended it to be uh cg but but b did build a full one-to-one fully painted spider so they could shoot that you know in the mist and and uh, use it as reference so the cgi people knew how it would look and so it didn't just look like a cartoon you know popping right. out in the middle of everything yeah i don't play i don't play around with spiders i think if i think if i saw one of those things in person like like the actual there's a living, breathing monster, and it looks like that. I think I would yeah. immediately, like, my my mind would shatter, and I think uh-huh. I would shit my pants. Like, all in one, boop, like, one fell swoop. Yeah. Yep. Just kind of like, you know, William Sadler going insane, which is another great moment in that movie where he sees the the dude that's infested with the spider eggs in the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, how fucking great is his reaction whenever the dude falls over and just explodes yeah. in a bunch of baby spiders, and he just breaks. There's a lot of really good, like, mental break acting in this movie. There's that William Sadler scene, then, of course, the ending with Tom Jane, 
Like they just fucking go for it, man. Yeah. Brent, are I, you scared of spiders? Uh, no, I'm the spider hunter in my house. My wife uh, does not like <laughs> spiders. So if she gets the snakes, I'll get the spiders. And thankfully there are no snakes around here. So uh, um, I That's will not say that at all. That's a good deal. A quick Google uh, for the monsters in the mist. They looked like they, you know, either made uh, one of those flying things to interact with people, or they just kind of made the model to go off of, but like one of those pterodactyl looking things. And then they had like, looked like one of the little flying mosquito things on a stick, you know, probably just reference. But uh, I mean, you would know more than I would just being on set, but some of these look pretty scary. Like the spider with the human teeth. No, yeah, that, that's the, the the human teeth is what gets me. <laughs> yeah, it's unacceptable. Unacceptable. It's very disturbing. And I love that they're not afraid to go in that direction where, like you said, it's not just this Cloverfield type of monster that's kind of ambiguous and, and unassuming and kind of just this bulking thing. Um, it's boring. You know, it's, 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 some- boring. It's, it's the same the same shit in boring. Super 8. It's the same goddamn monster. Yeah. I, I did it, appreciate the big walking things at the end, which right the right amount of that, you know, you just that see thing, it kind of pass over. You know what? That thing had tentacles like on its face, yep. you know, so and, and and like stomach. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a like an elephant crossed with a I guess crossed with an octopus. It, it's 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 like an elephant plus Cthulhu, basically. Right. That thing. It kind of I, reminds- that- me of the i don't know if i want to spoil there's a spoiler in the next 10 seconds for the movie the ritual uh <laughs> oh yeah that Go. creature from the ritual right that's that's some of the best monster design i've seen like in the past decade yeah it is so good i i just watched that again the other night and was like man it's brilliant what they did it like keeps unfolding and shit you know it's yeah. almost like yeah, like human arms and shit yeah 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 with creature stuff, I'm I'm usually let down because I'd rather, like I said, not know. But with that with that particular monster, I was like, man, that was really cool. And that's how I felt at the end of the mist was, you know, man, that's you know something huge. That th- at that point, there's no point in even being scared of it because you can't do it with that. There's no chance of yeah. getting away. You know, right. maybe a spider, you could get away, but with that big elephant looking thing, there's no chance. Yeah, if the thing is the the size of a skyscraper, you're just done for. Oh, yeah. You know, I think I would feel awe, but I don't know that I would feel like pants shitting terror. Like I would feel if there was a spider the size of my dog with my mouth coming at me across the room. Like those are (laughs) those are two totally different things. Right. It shows that everything that they've been scared of up to this point have essentially just been like bugs. Right. What's been attacking and killing everybody's essentially the the fleas on this thing. And and the fact that this behemoth is just walks on by, like I get the feeling that even if it looked down and saw them, it wouldn't give a shit it, it, any more than, you know, we we would like walking by, you know, an anthill or something. It's mm-hmm. like be like, yep, yeah, that's what that is. You know, th- that's on a completely different level. And, and you need to have something of that magnitude to sell the ending that Darabont is going for. You need to show the audience how royally fucked everybody is and mm-hmm. how there is no hope, right? That moment, you know, is so important to the ending working uh, for me. And it, to be fair, this ending doesn't work for a lot of people. And and I acknowledge that uh, I think they're wrong, but uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that wish that the movie had the books ending and the books ending isn't what? all that much happier. 
in a weird way, it's a it's it's a little bit more hopeful. But the book ends after they like get out of the main area that they're in and you know it ends with them like hold up at a, a Howard Johnson's and the and David Drayton's like writing out his story and leaving it for somebody mm-hmm. um, but it ends on a hopeful note because he hears a like a single word over uh, the radio uh, that says Hartford and he says heart there's hope because somebody's still alive out there in Hartford and but King always left it ambiguous like he even says that like maybe that's something he heard in his mind and you know misunderstood it could have been just a crackle but maybe there's hope I personally think that Darabont hit on kind of a master stroke of an ending not just because it's deep and dark that's certainly a part of it but like Brent said it it sticks with you this is something you remember people will be talking about the mist 50 years from now, like, are what would, you know, are people going to talk about The Messengers or, you know, some random, you know, horror movie that plays it safe and just plays by all the rules? Like, it, th- those are going to be the movies that are lost. But movies like The Mist will always have somebody talking about them. And it's amazing they tried to, they tried to talk Darabont out of that ending. You know, yeah. as we, as we learned hard. talking to uh, Tom Jane, they, they offered him twice the money for the budget to cut that ending and, and do something a little happier, but but you're right. The the ending is what makes it so memorable. Brent, the the first time you watched this movie, you didn't know how it ends. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I didn't know. I just knew it was a Stephen King movie, and that was about it. So, and and then you you know you get what happens at the end, and then you see in the mist the tanks come through, and you're like, God damn, that's so good. <laughs> you know, yeah. the hope was right there. If you waited another you know minute it would have been there but it was not going to happen what do you recall feeling in that moment were you upset by it or were you just like as you just said like that's just a great ending i think it was just a great ending and i wasn't upset about it because so many stories end with the the hopeful upbeat it was a i'm more of a darker personality anyway but it was just a nice change of pace to get like all hope is gone and now it's here, but it's still gone at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. It really pulls the rug out from under you that way. In a way it's the happiest ending of all for everybody. Who's not, was not (laughs) in that car. Yeah. Right. So like what's great about it is, is that in another movie with another point of view, this is the, you know, the independence day ending. We beat the aliens, right. You know, but it's not a happy ending for, for uh, poor Tom Jane. (laughs) If you were what's her face on the back of that truck with her two kids, she's right. happy. And d- d- in that moment, do you think she recognizes Thomas Jane? Oh, for sure. Yeah, oh, definitely. For, yeah. for sure. It's like, fuck that guy. You wouldn't walk I, a lady home and now uh, you're not walking nobody <laughs> home. It's what you get <laughs> for killing chivalry. I, rem- yeah. I remember seeing this like in the theater when it came out and my girlfriend and I, at the t- uh, my girlfriend at the time and I, and there were only maybe like five other people in the theater. And um, when the, the mist sort of breaks and those tanks come through, like someone in the audience l- yelled out like, Oh, come on, you know? <laughs> and, and I'll never forget that. Like sort of, cause like I didn't know how it was going to end beforehand, which is amazing because this movie was made at a point where like the internet was, you know, like movie blogs and ain't it cool news. Like that Eric used to work for were notorious for spoiling things about movies before they came out. You know, it was, it was uncommon not to know, a lot about a thing before it came out and certainly not like a Frank Darabont, Stephen King thing. Very unusual that they kept that ending secret. 
and I was blindsided by it, but my memory of that moment will always be tainted by that person in the audience. Tainted or accentuated, I guess, you know, <laughs> is probably more accurate. Just go, oh, come on. <laughs> like, fucking, just outraged by it. Oh, so it's such a good moment. I wouldn't trade that for anything. The Thomas Jane performance was so great because I had listened to his interview and then watched it the second time and just you realize how good of an actor that dude is because when you just listen to him speak as himself, you wouldn't think you would get that performance out of that guy. I agree. I agree. He's a free spirit, that Tom Jane. And he's laser focused in in the mist. That last shot of him just like sort of screaming. <laughs> you know, it's so it just rattles you to your bones. It's so good. What, what, so, and there's peaks and valleys to to it too, which is what I think sells it because he has the, you know, the dry firing into the mouth thing and the screaming stuff, and then he has like a moment of calm, and then he starts up again, and like in that for whatever reason that just strikes me as like incredibly authentic, which yeah. is why I was trying to get him to talk a little bit more about it, <laughs> that in depth of you know when we were talking to him, you know, but Tom Jane will talk about what he wants to. Which is totally, totally <laughs> cool and fair. I think that that's a masterclass that that moment in particular, uh, he's great throughout the whole movie, but it, it takes, it takes something special to pull that off. What he does there. Because you didn't get the uh, drop to the knees. No, which is, you know, how somebody would probably react, but you get that in every movie, you know, you yeah, you almost yeah. saw this, the, you know, lunacy set in. Yeah, totally. This whole cast is great though. Like, Tom Jane is great. Marsha Gay Harden is the religious lady is great. Uh, I hated her. So which that means you did a good job of yeah, like, slapped this she, woman. So, you know, like, she killed it. You, you want you want to hear something crazy about about that? I talked to most of the people, you know, most of the actors, most of the crew uh, during my visit. And I never really spoke to her. But like I would walk around the, the store in between takes and see where everybody was and lot, you know, some people went to their trailers or went off to the, you know, craft services or whatever. Was and but almost always not, not <laughs> too far off from that. She, oh. she had a little chair that she set apart from everybody down like the cereal aisle. And she would in between takes would be sitting there reading her Bible. That, no that was shit. part of the, yeah, yeah, like couldn't tell you that she did that all the time to stay in character, but like I, multiple times in the few days I was there on set, I saw her just sitting apart from everybody, keeping distance from everybody and reading her Bible. Man, that's wild. Yeah. I love to hear stories of how actors stayed in character type stuff. Yeah. Did you know you really well, just read the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you, uh, you know, if you've done any type of acting, which what I have done is very limited, but you, you try to step into a headspace and then just to step into a, a lady who's obviously a bitch, but also <laughs> like a religious, that's the the thing that makes right. her a bitch is like, oh, you, you believe in all this, but not really at the same time. Andre Brower, I, I want to like single him out for a second, because what I really like about his performance is how icy it is. The angrier he gets, almost like the more calm he gets in some scenes. And my memory of the novella is that that character is a more of a hothead and more of like prone to outbursts and making himself heard in as, as loud a manner as possible whenever uh, he feels like he's not getting his way. And Andre Brower is just like cold as fucking steel in this movie. He's he's great. You like, like reading the novella, you would not picture him for that role. 
not only because I think in the novella it's a white guy, but he's he's he just fucking kills it. Also, shout out to Toby Jones, the adorable little Toby Jones, little <laughs> right. mis- mischievous elf that shows up in uh, a number of my favorite movies. Yeah, and I, I was like, I know that he's the guy that you're like, I know him, but he's so like endearing that like you'd really want to just talk to that guy and you know he would be your friend from the jump. You right. want to swaddle him in a little blanket and like just like rock him, you know, uh, and also he's in uh, your highness and has like no dick in your highness. There's a <laughs> point in that movie where they reveal like tear his loincloth off or something. And he's like, he's smooth like a Barbie doll. I've never uh, related to a character more in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you how he stayed in character for that. <laughs> Um, When you're on set, Eric, did they actually have any kind of mist come through or is that all CG? Oh, no, they had definitely on the outside. Most people were wearing like masks and, you know, breathing masks and shit. I wasn't. So I probably got cancer or something. You were uh, an anti-mask before it was cool. Yeah, I was. (laughs) I was. Mm. You can't take my freedoms away from me. If I want to get cancer, I'm going to get cancer. The tyranny tyranny of of a Frank uh, Darabont set. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, no, that was all real. I'm sure that they accentuated that. But I mean, Mist is actually really tough to pull off in CG and make it look real. There's a really cool effect that's also practical when the door, the bay door and the uh, and the loading dock opens and the mist just hangs there mm-hmm. before spilling in. That was my understanding. I wasn't there for, for them shooting that, but I came in a couple of days after they shot that. And Darabont, I remember, was super excited because that was just something that like science did right because the temperature outside versus the temperature in there kept the the mist like at a wall whenever the door opened and mm-hmm. before it like kind of slowly spilled in i remember they were so excited about about how that looked but yeah that was all real was that a real grocery store i don't remember if you said so uh, earlier mm-hmm. no they built it 100 okay. percent built that yeah there might have been an exterior I, I i wasn't there for any location stuff i was only there for set stuff but and the, and what's the what's the term in the sitcom? Is it a uh, is that a bottle episode where pretty much it all takes place in one, in one area? Is that the term? Yeah, yeah, bottle episode. Yep, you're right. So this is the bottle I'm episode movie. Like in in Breaking Bad, there's the episode with the fly where they're pretty the fly, much all, right. I mean this this movie as much as it could be is all in that location, and you would think that it would be super boring as far as a movie to, you know, have it in one location, but it was not as far as the different elements that were introduced. But I did notice that as far as they didn't really leave this location except for, you know, the beginning and the end. Bottle episodes tend to feel like, like you can tell they're, they're saving some budget for a later episode in the season. You know, this never quite takes on that feel. And I think that's part of how they shot it. It's very active and, and Darabont brought his, um, active it's dynamic is what i meant to say but like um darabont brought over the crew that he had been working on on the shield which was another like super dynamic very immediate show in the in the way that it was shot and it all feels very real in fact i'm surprised to learn that it was a set i assumed that that was a practical location that they they redressed so that's interesting Hmm. uh yep nope nope that was all a set this only made 57 million dollars worldwide Our podcast, yeah, I know it's it's really. Uh, <laughs> I am severely underpaid. <laughs> I suppose there is an argument to be made that it would have made more money without that ending. 
if it had a feel good ending, I, I got to assume it would have made more money than that. But thank Christ they didn't go down that road. No, I, f- I feel like th- that ending was the right ending. And sometimes, you know, shit just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You got to have those endings from time to time. The fact that the that an ending like that can even exist gives me hope for every other horror movie I see that it will it will somehow pull out the stops and, and just go balls out with right. a, a really dark ending. I've said it multiple times, but it's yeah, it's true. Having movies like The Mist makes other movies better. Because yeah. the every every movie you see, something in the back of your mind is going to tell you maybe this won't all end the way that I think it will. It keeps everything from being samey. It you know makes every especially every horror movie you see is is riskier because movies like The Mist exist. The original Night of the Living Dead. You know, I mean, there's so many. It's funny. All the big favorite horror movies we always talk about almost always have dark endings. Even the original Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, ended with mm-hmm. fucking, you know, Freddy turning into a car and taking all the, the people away and then ripping the mom through the the door. Right. So it's mm-hmm. like it's such a great staple of, of horror movies that I, I just don't understand it when people get really upset at a horror movie having a dark ending. And, you know, a lot of people got upset about this one. I don't think I've ever met anyone that was like, fuck that movie because of the ending. You know, this movie in particular, you know, right. Um, I do not think I've encountered any of those types, but thank God. I, I don't know that I'd want to be trapped in a conversation with someone that didn't understand why that's like the best possible ending for this movie. You guys would be talking about it because it's a Stephen King podcast. Eventually you would have covered it, but you know, I wouldn't have suggested it had that ending not been the ending. Like <laughs> right. to me, it's every other zombie or disaster movie where, you know, like you said, when they are like, oh, let's go to Hartford. And then eventually they get there and that's all overrun too, because that's right. every zombie movie is, oh, right. Yep. That was an old transmission type thing. So at least yeah. that ending, I remembered it, you know. Or the ending where like a helicopter lands and it's like, we'll take you to safety. No, no, you won't. <laughs> yeah. The genius of this ending is that the happy ending was a minute away. Like, as you said, right. the, the happy ending, the way that the movie should have ended and most likely would have ended in any other director's hands or filmmaker's hands was there. But the characters acted too quickly uh, out of despair. Part of the reason why I love it. You know, it's not that just that simply it's a dark ending. It, it's the way Darabont turns the knife. It's almost gleeful in in how how much, you know, he's uh, torturing the audience. And to that point, he also does something that doesn't happen in the book. In the book, I don't think they ever make it back to Drayton's house, right? There is no closure there for all. He doesn't know if if his wife is still alive. And he, all he rem- think, can think of is that the tree busted the window. And and if those things are out in the mist, then the mist got inside with his wife. In the movie, there is no ambiguity of what happened. They drive by it and they see his wife is cocooned up and long been uh, yeah, know, that's a true. spider's victim. That's true. In the novella, like the, the road is closed or whatever. And you're like, right. buddy, you got a dead wife. Like this is a yep. this is a Christopher Nolan movie now. Like there's <laughs> that wife is dead. Well, just to add to the despair, that there was one hope and it's dashed and then another hope that they can drive out of the mist and that doesn't happen. And then, you know, at least they've seen the worst that can that can be offered and then they see the behemoth. And it's just like, well, fuck it. There is no other hope. You know, you hear something grumbling outside and it's going to come and eat your child. And the the one promise that you've made to him is that you won't let the monsters get him. 
he makes that snap decision. And if he had just waited, it would have been a okay. I love it. The ending to me, I think is an all timer. And Stephen King agrees with me. So anybody, any King fan who doesn't like you can go suck an egg. Yeah. Now, do we, do we think that the military was able to overcome everything else, especially the, you know, the behemoth thing? That's a very good question. Cause like, how are they going to clean all this shit up? They were doing something to be able to, to force the, the mist back. The mist might dissipate, but the creatures don't necessarily leave with it. I think that the insinuation is that the creatures can survive within the mist, but maybe not if the mist is gone. You know, kind of like fish and water, you know? That hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, me neither. I suppose it's possible. Imagine like li- like three months after the mist dissipates, but there's these things like still wandering around. You <laughs> right. know, like what a fucking headache that would be. Like you're just trying to get like you're trying to rebuild. Everyone's trying to go back to work and there's like a spider with baby teeth running at you in the street. <laughs> that would be such a bummer. All I want to do like, is call it Saturdays. To, great clips and go to Applebee's and I got these teeth spiders running around. <laughs> Out here trying to live my life. <laughs> it's just like people like wandering the streets with flamethrowers, you know, like with the the bored sort of expression of a guy like using a leaf blower, just, you know, going in all the nooks and crannies of buildings, mm-hmm. making sure everything's cleared out. Everybody's got one of those Elon Musk uh, flamethrowers. <laughs> Man, I wish I had bought one of those things. Well, do we have anything else we want to add here, or are we about done? I think mm. we're. I think we're good. I think we're getting ready to pull that trigger for three times. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Brent, where can people find you, and and what do you have coming up in the next few months? As uh, we mentioned before, my uh, second stand-up comedy album called Bluff Creek is out now on all platforms. It's called Bluff Creek uh, because there's a Bigfoot hunting joke on there. And uh, if you know that Bigfoot video, the you know that Bigfoot video that was shot at Bluff Creek in uh, California. So, And then I'm uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube, and I'm uh, posting videos all the time. I also do a couple different podcasts. One is called The Cafeteria, with Ryan Niemiller, who got third on America's Most Talent. He's the third most talented person in America currently. And then <laughs> uh, a guy named Johnny LaQuasto, who uh, he was an uh, announcer for the WWE. And then I do my own podcast called The Field Trip, which is uh, a deep dive into topics. So we've done uh, parody religions. We've done uh, the funniest obituaries. Just an uplifting <laughs> podcast. So, and those are uh, weekly and on Spotify and iTunes and all that stuff. Many thanks to Brent Terhune for joining us for that particularly entertaining episode. I hope you guys got a kick out of it. During the edit, I noticed I made a little bit of a geek boo-boo. I attributed the Xanti Misfits to a Twilight Zone episode, when in fact they are an Outer Limits creation. I know I lost a few geek points there, you know, but hey, at least I admit it. Next week on the KingCast is our last episode before Halloween, so we wanted to make sure we did something special. Our title is Sleepwalkers, an original screenplay written by King, not adapted from one of his previous published stories, and directed by King favorite Mick Garris. It's a wild-ass movie, and we are bringing back one of our most popular guests to go on that ride with us. For our Patreon subscribers, we have a new commentary track hitting our KingCast Patreon this Friday. This commentary will cover a King movie near and dear to our hearts, Maximum Overdrive. And we will be joined by the one and only Nacho Vigalondo. 
You'll probably know him as the director of films like Time Crimes and Colossal. This crazy Spaniard loves Maximum Overdrive even more than we do, so I can guarantee it'll be a lively one. If you haven't already, you can join the fun over at our Patreon by visiting patreon.com backslash the KingCast. We definitely appreciate every single one of our KingCast quartet who have chipped in to keep the show going. Thanks, guys. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, which is at KingCast19, and that should be all the housekeeping for today. We'll see all you constant listeners next week for Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. <laughs>